Thank you so much. Good morning. Wonderful July day to be able to gather together, worship our Lord. You ever find yourself in a situation where you know you're going to be in a social gathering later in the day, and you're wrestling with, what will I say? And will the conversations be difficult? And how shall I express my thoughts? If you ever find yourself in situations like this, this passage we're looking at this morning is for you because the book of James is highly practical and very instructive in the area of providing you and me with wisdom, personally as well as relationally, and in today's study, verbally. Because what seems to be absent so often in our world is a sense of verbal wisdom, relational wisdom, when it comes to how to be able to engage one another's in the course of life's conversations. I typically find this passage, as well as a group of others, to be instrumental in equipping me before I go into gatherings like a Sunday night service or Monday night board meetings, Wednesday night discipling, and on and on and on it goes, you see. Verbal wisdom is something that can have high impact for God's glory when we seek to put God first in our conversations. And so this morning, as we continue in our study in the book of James, we're up now to chapter 3. We're going to be studying verse 1 down through verse 12, and I want you to be thinking seriously with me this morning about what adjustments we need to make in our own personal lives to be able to be more effective verbally, relationally, in the communication of biblical principles in a way that honors God. So in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we find these words. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble on what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, and though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, 
these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So now, you and I have just been introduced to verbal wisdom. The way in which you and I are to carry on conversations in the home, in the workplace, in the schools, in the neighborhoods, to impact others for God's glory, words carry weight. And because of that, we are going to be looking into God's word to understand how to use our words in a way that truly honors him. And to do that, we'll look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, what I want to thank you for now is the opportunity that we have in settings like these to take into account some of the serious issues that we sometimes have to face. There can be anxieties and pressures sometimes when we're about to go into social gatherings. You have wisely equipped us through your word to look to certain passages of Scripture where we can examine our own vulnerabilities, maybe our own strained relationships, or our own tendencies with certain words, and ask ourselves some tough questions as to how to be better prepared to be able to minister to others in a way that honors you through the use of our words. We're realizing that we're going to be turning to your word to equip us to better be prepared to communicate via our words to other people what matters most. So, Father, with this exercise in mind before us, and knowing we want to be better equipped in the way in which, whether it be one-on-one or in large settings, words come into play, we're asking in these minutes together that you would warm our hearts, that you would engage our minds, that you would shape these wills, because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across a heading entitled Words That Shook the World. What hath God wrought? was the question. Posed in the first long-distance message by Morse Telegraph. Or this one. Mr. Watson, come here, I want you. The first intelligible words sent by telephone. The Italian navigator has landed and the natives are friendly. First message to the world that the atomic energy had been born. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The first words that Neil Armstrong obviously uttered as he stepped on the moon's surface. Where are you? By God to Adam and Eve after they had sinned in the garden 
of Eden. Words matter. Words carry weight. And the thinking person, the person that is seeking to be verbally wise in social gatherings, is going to have to collect and pull together this strand of verbal wisdom principles that God has given us so that we can be better prepared to minister and be proactive before we enter into social gatherings rather than waiting until after the fact and then saying to ourselves, why did I say that? And if I could do it again, I would have said this rather than that. Now James, then, is equipping you and me for these kinds of situations. And so the wise person now processes this so that we are proactive rather than reactive when in the way in which we are involved in the whole matter of words. God was proactive. We are told in Genesis chapter 1, in, in a sense of a rhythm, on a daily basis, and God said, and God said, and the baby said. <laughs> I don't think that's in Genesis 1. But what we find here is that there is an immediate evaluation of the results of God's words. It is good. It is good. It is good. What God is demonstrating from the very onset, proactively, as words were bringing about a sense of life in this world, is simultaneously an evaluation of the result of those words. And likewise, you and I know that God evaluates our words and the result of our words, and so we have to be proactive rather than merely reactive in their usage. What I want to do with you now, as we're continuing on in this study in James, which is really the New Testament book of Proverbs, isn't it? It's a book of wisdom. It's now to ask ourselves, and how can I become verbally wise? in the way I minister to others. There are two significant recommendations dealing with what happens when we are using words wisely and what happens when we are using words unwisely. The first flows out of verse 1, down through verse 4, and we're going to phrase it like this, number 1, that when employed wisely, our tongues can be used both instructively and directionally, instructively, and directionally. You say, but Gary, how does all that fit together? In verse 1, look very carefully at this whole idea of speaking instructively. The image there is that of the teacher. So for all the teachers of this congregation, both out in the marketplace, throughout the school systems, as well as here in our Christian education ministries, ponder, process what James is about to say in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. Pause. My brothers. Now, we ask ourselves immediately, why? In other words, there is to be this selective process in which teachers are to be screened by God's word for God's glory. 
here's the reason. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In other words, our words are not only measurable in accordance to Scripture, our words, furthermore, are accountable to our sovereign God. Because someday we will stand before him and give an account of our words. And the teacher in particular has got to be increasingly aware of the way in which his words influence others. Now, Jesus finds a man approaching him in the midst of the night. The man's name is Nicodemus. And as Nicodemus moves into Jesus' zone, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. God the Father was validating the ministry of God the Son through those signs. What is the response then that Jesus delivers immediately after being recognized by one teacher that Jesus Christ is a teacher sent from God? Notice the way in which Jesus works both instructively as well as directionally. He gets right into the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. My word, he just went from A to Z. I'm not sure Nicodemus was ready for that, but he has recognized Jesus being a teacher sent from God. Therefore, he's going to have to hear the instructions of what matters most of a teacher who's sent from God. What this means, then, is that you and I, when we are, whether it be in the home, as parents, among classmates, when you return to school, we will be positioned in instructive opportunities and instructive settings. And the question will be, what will matter most when given the opportunity to speak relationally? Not merely online, but offline. Now, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? And so the conversation carried on in in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was an Old Testament professor. He was highly recognized in the land of Israel, but he was showing that he had a lack of understanding about spiritual rebirth. He had not examined the book of Ezekiel carefully. Jesus calls him on it. Nicodemus said to him in verse in verse 8, how can these things be? And rather in verse 9, and Jesus answered him, question, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? He's flipped it. Nicodemus values the role of a teacher. And so now Jesus is calling him, and he is challenging him, that evidently, as a teacher, you you are not instructing in all aspects pertaining to what matters most. Now in the home, and in the various relational gatherings, our tongues can be used by God instructively to guide people to what 
matters most. And here now, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is challenging you and me with regard to the way in which we are functioning instructively when given the opportunity, whether it be relationally or formally, to be able to communicate what matters most to people at their point of need. Henrietta Mears was probably one of the greatest Christian education geniuses of our time. She was the director of Christian education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church during the 1940s and 50s. Dr. Lewis Evans, who I had the privilege to meet, was the senior pastor of that church. And the Christian education ministry in Hollywood had reached a point of 4,000 people in attendance. She had impacted countless people going into Christian service, shaped men such as Billy Graham, Richard Halverson, Bill Bright, mover in the founding of the National Sunday School Association, the starter of the Gospel Light Publications, and a visionary in the whole establishment of Forest Home, the great conference center where thousands have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Her nickname was The Teacher. And when she died in the early 60s, officials at Forest Lawn Memorial Park said it was the largest graveside crowd in 20 years, which is astounding when you consider that many of Hollywood's most famous celebrities were buried there. But her life was a powerful testimony to the fact that she understood in very succinct yet critical ways that whether formally or informally, you and I are given strategic opportunities proactively to be able to communicate truth, strategic, life-changing, transformational truth in the various settings of life that God places us in. So now the question is, do you view yourself as a teacher when you are placed in various social gatherings where you have perhaps only one opportunity to talk about the things that matter most? What will be your starting point? What's your on-ramp? How do you shift lanes? And how do you keep the conversation moving through A to B to C to D until you get to the core issue of what is utmost importance to that person, the issue of the heart in relationship to Jesus Christ? They came to try to entrap Jesus. And in John chapter 7, verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And the chief priests and the Pharisees looked at the officers, and they didn't have Jesus handcuffed, so to speak. And so they said, why didn't you bring him? Listen to the response. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. What distinguishes you verbally when you're part of the conversation of life?
In verse 2, you and I are told, for we all stumble in many ways. That is an athletic term. Always grips my attention, the athletic imagery of the Bible. It's the imagery of an athlete who is somehow trying to make his way toward the finish line, and he gets tripped up. Now, God has placed you and me on a course leading to a finish line, and what we have to do is to bear in mind the various places where we would be vulnerable. And in this text, vulnerable conversationally, vulnerable relationally. So we ask ourselves tough questions, such as when we are in life groups, so to speak, are there certain things that need to be phrased a certain way? Are there certain things left better unsaid? Because the lips reveal the heart. If the heart condition is not right, the lips will somewhere along the way reveal the heart. You have before you in our handouts today five bullet points with regard to the use of words. The measure of our spiritual maturity includes the usage of our words. Our spiritual conversations reveal the heartfelt issues from within. Take, for example, the timing of our words. You see Proverbs 15.23 listed. There it says, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, how good it is. Now ask yourself, conversationally, am I introducing winter when it's summer? Or summer when it's winter? In other words, in the midst of this conversation, am I choosing matters of timing? Is this the best time to make that statement? What about the setting of our words? In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, you and I are informed, a word fitly spoken, fitly, is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, which was highly valued in the Israelite culture. So now I look at the timing of my words, And now I evaluate the setting of my words. Should that be part of a hallway conversation? Or should that be stated privately, one-on-one, outside the earshot of others? Then I furthermore evaluate the choice of my words. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, you see. The lips don't ponder. The lips are simply a response mechanism from the heart. And so now what I have to do is to begin to weigh internally. Is that what is best for that person to hear at this time? Will I have opportunity to clarify if misunderstood, or will I not? Because if there will be no further opportunity for clarification, then I might be vulnerable with what I'm about to say. The amount of our words... When words are many, transgression is not lacking. The restraint of our words. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit, a cool spirit, is a man, you see, of understanding. Ask yourself, where am I vulnerable verbally? 
those in particular who tend to be highly impulsive, highly expressive, and highly temperamental are increasingly vulnerable in social contexts and desperately need the lordship of Jesus Christ over the heart so that we are able to weigh the words wisely and effectively to minister in a way that brings glory to God. Because we all stumble in many ways. And how many of us have words that we wish we could retrieve? And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. And now we see the imagery here. He's moving it towards the equestrian events. The equestrian events. Because what I want to do is tie together now, instructively, the teacher in verses 1 and 2, with directionally the bit and the rudder in verses 3 and 4. Watch how all this appears on the screen. In verse 3, he deals with the bit. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, if you and I are at the county fair in the coming weeks, what's going to stand out if you move in the direction of the equestrian area is that there are going to be these little gales sitting on these large horses. In and of themselves, they're not able to provide direction except for the fact that they have control of the bit. Something so small is able to harness that which is so big. Now, what God is telling you and telling me is that we need to have that sense of an understanding of the way in which something so small, such as a private conversation, such as a singular statement, such as a particular word, can have such great consequences. If that's not enough, and he says, if the equestrian doesn't quite grip your mindset, how about the nautical? And so he goes to verse 4, and he says in verse 4, Look at the ships. Just stand by Lake Michigan. Ponder the goings-outs and the comings-ins. And though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So what he is now doing is saying what you and I are required of is to tie together that which is instructional with that which is directional and somehow, some way, point people in the direction they need to be looking. Years ago, there was a man, he was a sculptor, and he wanted to create an image of a teacher who was highly recognized in Switzerland for his impact upon students. In his first attempt, he evidently didn't get it right because he had in this sculpture the students looking directly up at him, but the friends and the relatives of the teacher said, you didn't get it. That's not who he is. That's not how he taught. And so the man tried again. And what you and I are told here in his biography is this. The sculptor had failed to represent the dominant desire of the teacher not to have those he taught look with wonderment upon him, but to look beyond. And so a change was made. 
And at the second unveiling, what we find is that the students are around the teacher, but they are not looking at the face of the teacher. The teacher is pointing upward, and their gaze likewise extends beyond the teacher. Now, the same is true in the home. The same is true in the workplace, in our various relational conversations. That where there is verbal wisdom, we are drawing attention not to what we said. We are drawing attention to the Lord, the one who is over what we said. And now we ask ourselves the tough questions. Was that used in any way, shape, or form to help direct people towards the one who is the ultimate teacher, who taught what means to be born again, and then went to the cross so that you and I could, in fact, experience that very thing, rebirth, found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, here's what we do. We take the imagery. What did you find in verses 1 and 2? The image of the teacher. Not looking at, but looking beyond. You look at the imagery in verses 3 and 4. You spot at the bit. You furthermore considered the rudder. And now you ask yourselves, and what do the bit and the rudder have in common? One, they are very small in comparison to something bigger that they are involved in harnessing. Number two, they are involved in overcoming what I will call oppositional forces. The horse in and of itself without the bit could carry the child away. The ship without the rudder could just simply leave people abandoned at sea. But with these two items being highly regulated, the result is they can be used for great good. Now, when you and I have our tongues highly regulated through the working of the Holy Spirit, it can be used for a powerful good conversationally when you are there at the point of need of those who are struggling with the big issues of life itself. Take those five bullet points now and weave them into what we're looking at. And think through carefully what it is that God is saying at this point, at our point of need. Now, once we've evaluated ourselves in terms of our, our vulnerabilities and our opportunities, the opportunities here tied to the word wisely, what happens when our tongues are employed unwisely? Well, James is incredibly wise because he balances the positive with the negative. That's the way scriptures work. And now in verse 5, down through verse 12, what he's going to do is to flip it. And he's going to say, okay, you have now processed how to introduce wisdom verbally in your social settings, in the home, at work, and elsewhere. But what happens when it's employed unwisely? Verses 5 down through verse 12, here's your second significant guideline. That when employed unwisely, our tongues can be used both destructively and contradictorily. Now, I've got to ask, and you've got to ask, and where am I most prone for my tongue to be operating destructively? Is it when I'm so overly reactive that I have not balanced myself with being verbally proactive or vice versa? Have I spent enough time weighing things within so that I've got a balance between the internal and the externals of life. Am I all lip and no heart? Or does my heart truly guide my lips, and is my heart under the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
And we think about these things. And then we think about the fact that the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. When in verse 5 now, we read how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The second part of verse 5. First of all, let's evaluate this destructively. And there are two images that leap out of verses 5 through 8. The image of the fire, number one. The image of the animal, number two. Now, start with the fire. In verse 5, how great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. In first service, um, I'm, I looked out as I was speaking, and I was struck with the fact that a a classmate of mine from years and years and years ago had his home destroyed by fire, and they had to rebuild. What you and I find is something so small can destroy something so large that we now assess and ask ourselves the tough questions. When going into that social gathering this week, Where is it that I might be prone to start something which, in the eyes of others, seems so small? But the result could be something so large, destructive rather than constructive. You and I know that when we're camping, fire can be both constructive as well as destructive. A campsite, barbecue, grilling, What we have here is the opportunity, then, to do something that's productive. But when it gets out of hand, the positive becomes a negative. Now, we ask ourselves tough questions from James. Where is it where the positive can quickly be inflamed into a negative? It only takes a spark, you see, to get the fire going, the old campfire song. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. If you've ever walked into a dry cleaning service, you're aware that sometimes they're having to deal with clothing that has been affected, you see, by smoke due to fire. The whole body is setting on fire the entire course of life, set on fire by hell. And the word here for hell, Gehenna, from the original language, was a place outside the city limits of Jerusalem, which is where James himself taught God's word, which seemed to have an ongoing fire attached to it during World War II. Little words sink big ships was the way in which they phrased things. The psalmist then adds these thoughts in Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Now I ask, have I established what we will call a biblical filter between my heart and my lips to make absolutely certain if there's something that's proceeding from the lips that can be intercepted before it gets there by this filter established by Scripture? You and I know the story of that 9 o'clock Sunday evening, October 8, 1871. Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over the lantern. She was being milked. Started the great Chicago fire. 
blackened three and a half miles of the city, destroyed 17,000 buildings before it was checked by gunpowder explosions on the south line of the fire. The fire lasted two days, took 250 lives. Gets a lot of historic attention. But what is forgotten, it wasn't the greatest inferno in the Midwest that year. Because historians tell us that on that very same day, that dry autumn day, a spark ignited a raging fire in Wisconsin, the north woods of Wisconsin, burned for an entire month, took more lives than the Chicago fire, and as a result, loss rather than gain. A fire can produce that which is productive, yet a fire can produce that which is destructive. And now we took a good hard look at ourselves and asked, where am I vulnerable? Have I established my filter? Is this a spark that can lead to destruction? And then he ties it together with what happens in verses 7 and 8. He moves from the fire to the animal. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And now you take that which is small and ask, and how can it have such great impact? When I was studying for something other than the pastorate years and years ago in graduate school, before I'd gone, in fact, to graduate school. I had to take a course in what was known as parasitology. And those that were studying to be doctors, particularly from overseas, wanted to sign up for this course because they knew what this was doing to the continent of Africa. There was a lineup for people that wanted this course. And as we spent time examining the various forms of parasites under our microscopes, Again and again and again, I could hear the African students saying, isn't it astounding how something so small can produce something so bad? And you look at that, and we ask, how can we counter this? What can we do when we see things like this? When we consider that which can be deadly, we ponder that in relationship to the one who spoke words as he was dying. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus on the cross, the first word. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The second word. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Jesus speaking to both John and his mother Mary. The third word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fourth word. I thirst. Fifth word. It is finished. One word in the Greek that seizes our eternity tension because it forces us to think about a way in which a word conveys that which matters most, that you can neither add to nor subtract from 
what had been articulated at the cross via the death of Jesus Christ. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is something powerful and weighty about last words. I'm kneeling at the side of a bed this week. Hospice patient. She can barely speak. She's whispering words into my ear. I've got her husband right next to me. And she's quietly trying to tell me about her hopes when she's no longer here. Her words matter. It's my responsibility not to talk through her words, but to listen carefully to what's on her heart and find a way of creating something good. And God said, and God said, and God said, it is good. It is good. It is good. And there is an appraisal of the results of productive words. So now we make our own appraisals and ask ourselves the tough questions about whether or not our words are productive. And we tie it together. Because not only are you dealing with that idea of that which is done destructively, but also ponder the relationship of the lips and the tongue, that which is done contradictorily, in verse 9 through 12. With it, speaking of this tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. Picture Sunday morning. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Picture Monday morning. Maybe a co-worker who's difficult to relate to. Now, look at this contradiction. One mouth, opposites. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He's talking believers here. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So now, notice the next word that appears up there, contradictorily, the spring and the tree. He takes you now to the spring and the tree. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Those are questions. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. There is an answer from nature to the questions coming from nature. And we tie that then all together. There's Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, verse 16. I never knew him. One mouth. Opposite statements. A contradictory life. And yet we find ourselves singing, don't we? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise. And so now collectively as well as individually, we look very carefully at the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And now we remind ourselves, a divided heart produces opposite statements 
A divided heart produces contradictory statements, but a whole heart under the Lordship of Jesus Christ creates a consistency in this contradictory world and allows people to see the singular focus of the one who said, it is finished, and committed his life, his spirit to his Lord. As should we. Let's stand together. Words have weight. Our sovereign God spoke and it came into being. Out of nothing came something. And as he spoke, the result was the assessment. It is good. And being under his lordship, his sovereign lordship then, what we have to do is to produce a sense of assessment that as we speak, and then we consider the results, are they good? And then we look at Peter and we see him both confessing Jesus Christ on one hand and denying Jesus Christ on the other. One tongue contradictory statements. And what we need to do, Father, is to place ourselves completely under you so that your word is being represented through our words and our Savior is represented in the way in which we speak of him and live for him. So, Father, help us now, practically speaking, to take these things, relate them to the way in which we parent, grandparent, the way in which we go about relating to students this coming fall in classes, hallways, and the way in which we work and relate to colleagues. And may everything please you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.